0: Following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would please turn with me to uh, the Book of Psalms, we're going to be in Psalm 19. And we're going to look at the back half of that today. We did the first half last week, so verses 7 through 14. Uh, if you're still figuring out how to work, work your Bible, find the books. Uh, Psalms is a big one right near the middle. That's where you'll find it. And uh, if you don't have something to follow along with us in the Scriptures, we'll have them on the screens for you. If, if you don't own a Bible, please let us know before you leave. We'd really like to give you one. Uh, no strings attached. We, we just really like doing that. And so uh, what we're doing is we're just continuing to work our way through uh, the book of Psalms. We've done this in chunks over the last uh, 10 years. And, and the Psalms is an ancient collection of, uh, of poems and songs. And so it reads a little different than other sections of the scripture. And uh, you'll see that as, as we dig into it together. So uh, if, if we continue at our current clip Uh, I will need about 65 more years to teach through this whole book. Um, So uh, we're either going to need to pick up the pace in the future or something, because that puts me at 102. And uh, I mean, I guess, I suppose if the Lord requires me to stay on earth and and serve that long, that maybe by then there'll be like anti-gravity chairs that I could zip around in up here, like George Jetson. It'd be cool, too, if like it had buttons integrated where I had like sound effects and stuff that I could run through the system. I don't know. Maybe. We'll see what happens. Uh, I don't know. We'll just keep working on it. We're, <laughs> we're doing good. Uh, last week, we saw David, uh, he's the author of Psalm 19, declaring the goodness and the glory of God as revealed in creation. And then he then moves. We're going to see this week to the goodness and glory of God revealed in His Word, and so he starts with creation one through six, and there's going to be this pivot seven through fourteen, where he talks about the glory and goodness of God declared through His Word. Uh, So before we read this uh, this morning, I think it's interesting for us to keep in mind that when David is thinking about the Word of God. Uh, he would have had the Torah, which is the first five books written by Moses, uh, probably Joshua and Judges, maybe a few Psalms, perhaps Job and Ruth, but that would have been about it. So as we listen to David's declarations about the word of God, keep in mind, he didn't have the fullness of the whole counsel of God that, that we have, and, and, and I'm, what I'm saying is, and still, let's kind of see what he has to say, right? Right. Um, Also key, I want to tell you this before we get in and read it, because it can be confusing. Key to this passage is knowing that these first six the statements, he'll start with the law of the Lord, and then he continues to go down. All those statements, they're they're poetic variations describing the same thing, and that being the word of God. So the big subject here, and these are all kind of different ways that David's going at describing what God's word is, Uh, All all six of those are are really focused on the Word of God, and and some of that would be tricky to to see just off the top. So, okay, let's read together Psalm 19, 7 through 14 together. Uh, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. hidden faults. Also keep your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Praise God for his word. Amen. All right, let's work through this together. And, and before we start kind of going verse by verse, I think there's maybe some important track to lay principally. So the, the first thing I think is really important to notice is that as David pivots okay, from the revelatory impact of creation to that of God's word, in the beginning of the psalm, you see the word God. If you go back to verse one, he's talking about uh, the glory of God in creation. He uses the word God, and in English, so in English, it's God in our Bible. In, in, in Hebrew, that would have been the word El or Elohim, and that's kind of a general name for God. It would, it would, the way we use the word God in English, it could, almost, it could also apply even to a, maybe a, a different God, a false God, something like that. El is a very general, the way we would use the term God, okay? But starting in verse 7, there's this interesting change. You see the word Lord in all caps. So it's not El or Elohim anymore. It's this word Lord. And in the English translation, that's what it says. But in, in Hebrew, that's Yahweh. That's the personal name of God. That's the covenant name of God, right? So it's not this kind of general entity, but it is the God of Israel who came to Abraham. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? And so that's, that's interesting. And it fits with the whole idea that there is this general revelatory power of creation to show us that there is someone or something very mighty, very good, that created this. But it doesn't get us to the specifics. That's what the Word of God does. Right? So we can't know all that we need to know as humans about God just from creation. It can be helpful in sending us searching in the right direction, but it doesn't do the whole thing. And when you see, uh, just this is not pertinent here, but since we're talking about these kind of different names for God and the way that it's translated in English, you'll sometimes see Lord in your Bible, and it's not all capitalized. So when Lord is all capitalized, that's Yahweh. When it's just a capital L and the rest are small caps, that's Adonai. And that translates roughly to master or my master. Okay? So in case you weren't aware of that, as you're reading through your Bible, you can be paying attention for those distinctions. Okay? There's a lot more that could be said about all of that, but <laughs> we will be down a deep rabbit hole if we go any farther. So, um, the, the point in bringing that up, all of that, is that many people are fine with, or they even think they prefer, okay, a general and not personal God. Some are content with the realization that creation declares clearly the existence of a creator, but they they have no desire or they have believed the lie that it's not possible to go further in knowing who that creator is. And that's problematic. God did not only make himself known to us through the world he made, but also in the word he made. In his great love for us and his desire for us to know and love him, God didn't just declare what can be known about him through his works. He also gave us the great precious gift of his word. There's so much uh, here, I can't go far into it, but there's, there's a good reason, because the rest of this sermon is, is going to be, it's going to flow out of David's musings around the value of the word of God, the purpose of the word of God, what it Does what it reveals about him. I don't want to take for granted that we're all looking at it the way David did. There's a lot of confusion about whether that's even right to do. And there's a lot here, there's a lot more, much more. I mean, seminary class is full of things that could be said along these lines, but I want to just at least acknowledge that there are those that are unsure whether this, first of all, is the word of God. A. And then, and then B, how it is we're supposed to interact with that. What, what should I think about the Word of God? How do I come to it? What, what is its purpose for me? Okay? How is it supposed to shape me? All of these things. So <clears throat> I, I just want to take a, a moment. It'll probably be more than a moment. You knew that. Just a moment, though. A few moments, maybe, if I give myself a little leash here. Um, a few moments to, to lay out this pro- I think there is good reason us to believe these scriptures are god's word and and again this won't be exhaustive but first of all let's ask the question what is the bible okay well the bible that word it's it's a latinized version of an older word and it basically means the book or the books the bible is really a library it's 66 books there's 39 in the old testament there's 27 in the new testament The Bible was written by roughly 40 authors over the span of roughly 1,500 years in several different languages on a few different continents. And this amazing thing happens. We have a library of books here written in that span of time apart from each other by all these different authors. And yet, this Bible, it coalesces and it comes together to tell one incredible true story. It tells the story of the creation of it tells the story of mankind's fall and then God's great efforts all that he has done and is doing to redeem us and then finally it gives us hope in looking forward to the final restoration that he has planned and that 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 theme that story it flows from Genesis to Revelation that in and of itself the bible what i'm trying to push you towards here is to i want you to see the bible as a miracle because it is it's a work of god It stands alone in terms of works of literature. Why else do I think, I think that in and of itself is something to consider. How could you pull that off without a divine orchestration? But, you know, aside from that, Jesus, even if people don't necessarily think this is God's word, or, or maybe they don't think all of it is God's word, or maybe they think it does, but I still don't like big pieces of it. Maybe that's where they're at. Almost invariably, and there are outliers, but most people have at least, most people don't want to get in a fight with Jesus. You understand that? Most people just aren't there um, because Jesus is hard to fight with. He's so awesome, right? So, uh, I think so. Um, sounds like some of you do too. And so that, that comes through. And so a lot of people have maybe amicable, amiable feelings towards Jesus, but but the word eh, I don't know so much about that. But you know, Jesus is such a, he's so brilliant. A lot of the times where we think we've got these kind of neutral places to stand around these issues, he didn't really leave us those options because one of the reasons I believe the Old Testament is God's word is because Jesus quoted from the Old Testament all through the thing, the history, the poetry, he quoted from uh, the prophets, he was all over the thing all the time, quoting it and calling it scripture. Jesus thought that the Hebrew scriptures were scripture, holy scripture, the word of God. So You know, and I know there's lots of opinions, maybe lots of things to consider, and and just for the sake of brevity, I'm just going to say, like, I'm with Jesus on this one. I'm going to go with him, okay? So, you know, I realize you can make it more complicated than that, and and, and I'm fine to have those conversations too, but that's really kind of the bottom line for me. Um, Jesus showed me enough in in, in his life, death, resurrection, um, in the truth of all that he said, and In in, in the the details of the gospel that I I just trust him. So, amen. Uh, In addition to that, it's like, okay, well, Jesus thought the Old Testament was Scripture. Great. Well, what about the New Testament? Well, the the New Testament writers, okay, who were, and and here's, we get into questions of the canon and how the the Scriptures were assembled. There's, here's some things to consider. What we have, the 27 books of the New Testament, okay they were, th- these were either apostles that wrote them, or uh, apostles of Jesus, handpicked by Jesus. That's the great bulk of what we have in the New Testament. Or they, they got their source material from the apostles. Okay, They were eyewitnesses to the events and, and were closely... You know, Mark, for example, uh, most people are, are pretty sure that Peter was the source material for Mark's gospel, Mark's gospel being the earliest of the four. Okay, so, uh, and so, and so in the New Testament, we see these apostles, these, these men handpicked by Jesus to begin the great work of building the body of Christ and preaching the good news that Christ had done all that he said he would do and, and has ascended to the Father and that we now have hope in him, right? Um, you see them referring to one another's writings as Scripture, Peter, when he's talking about that sometimes Paul's writings are hard to understand, amen, Peter, I agree, uh, he said, like, but, but men will take them and, and, and they'll twist them like they do the other scriptures. Okay? And then we see, we see Paul quote uh, this idea about a, a labor being worthy of their wages and you shouldn't muzzle the ox while they're treading the grain. That's a direct quote of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. It's the only place we see it. And he quotes it as scripture, right? So Paul. A verified apostle, okay, is, is seeing the, the writing of Luke. So, and there's lots more of that. I'm just giving you a couple examples. I told you this was brief, right? Just a few moments. I don't, okay, we're, we're, I'm almost done. Um, you know, Peter called Paul's writing scripture, Paul called Luke's writing scripture, and, and, and so on and so on. Okay, so why does this matter? Well, it matters because we're getting, we're jumping neck deep here into a, a bunch of, of musings around the word of God from the psalmist, David, and there, it really matters what we believe the Bible is, what we believe about it. And so a commonly used summary idea of that is, is that it's found in Second Timothy 3.16. If you've been around teaching of the Bible for any amount of time, you've likely heard this. It says all scripture is inspired by God. So that's step one. We believe the scriptures are inspired by God. That puts them on a different level of all other antiquated lit- literature or, or any literature whatsoever. These are the inspired words of God. Okay? We're talking about the doctrine of the scriptures here. What, what, are, what is the Bible? It's inspired by God and it's beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. Okay? So that's a good summary statement of what we believe about the Bible. Now, the exact details of how God inspired human authors to write his words, people have different ideas about that. People, you know, There's lots of arguments, lots of ink spilled about the details of how exactly that works. I don't know that God made it as plain as some people think exactly how it worked, but I believe it did work. The Bible is a witness for itself, and I realize in other places you may not, you may not take that, but, but this, this, this proves itself over and over again in various ways. To be something different, (laughs) I would say that different thing is the Word of God. That's why it stands out. It's important to know that the church did not decide. Okay, Early church councils that that worked on the, the canonization of Scripture, they did not decide, but they discovered in a few hundred years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, what was Scripture. It's important to understand that God knew when He was inspiring the writers of Scripture what book he wanted assembled to tell his story and to let people know who he is, okay? So it's not that early church councils got together and it was, it was the church's authority that they were deciding what was scripture. It was a process of them humbly being followed by, or being led by the Holy Spirit, following the Holy Spirit to discover what God had deemed to be scripture. And there, was, there were different criteria, you know, apostolic connection, continuity, you know, does, does, does this book teach what the rest of the Bible teaches or does it take this w- way wide left turn that's contrary to the rest of what Scripture says? So there's, there, there, were, there, were, there was a process to that. But here's, here's the bottom line. There, there is, I want to say this. This is the honest truth. There is an element in which it comes down to trusting that all the evidence we have that God chose to reveal himself through inspiring human authors to write his words, because of all the evidence we can see of that, there's an element in which we have to trust that means if, if we have enough evidence that God wanted to reveal himself through his word. And I say we, I say we have that in Christ, right? I say we have that when, when in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, right? John 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh. There's this, there's this kind of mysterious way that the very essence of Christ is contained within the words of scripture. Well, how does that work, Pastor Vince? I don't know. I said it's mysterious, okay? Like, God does some stuff he hasn't yet explained to me or anybody, okay? Like, that's his right, okay? Being God and all. Uh, <clears throat> that's how that works. So, but, but there's an element in which if, if we... Jesus clearly cited the Old Testament Scriptures as, as the Word of God, dealt with it. If the whole question is, does God reveal himself through inspiring people to write down his words. Is that the way God conducts himself? I think the answer is yes, Jesus affirmed that, right? He did. And so if, if we know that that's the way God communicates, there's an element that we're gonna have to trust. He also shepherded the process of assembling and preserving those words for us, okay? So I, I do wanna say there is an element in which treating the Bible as the Bible presents itself to be treated is at the very end of the road a matter of faith, so let's be honest about that. Um, but I, I don't think it's, it's, a, it's a nonsense, willy nilly type of faith. <laughs> just like believing in Christ's existence and his life and his death and his resurrection, that's, it's not just, oh, well, that's what I want to believe. That sounds like the coolest of ancient religions that I could jump onto. Um, it doesn't, actually. The gospel's wild, <laughs> and it's counterintuitive at every turn. So it's not, not the one I would have made or picked, but I'm so thankful I didn't get the job. Uh, There is much about God we can never know if all we had was the general revelation provided us by creation, okay? And so we're going to see some of that laid out in verses seven through nine. What are some of the things that made it necessary for God to go beyond declaring his goodness and glory in creation and actually give us the great gift of his word? So let's work on that together. Starting in verse seven, we see that the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The perfection of the word of God, it flows from the perfection of God himself. All right? Let's think about this for a minute, especially for those of us that have been, how shall we say, running this race for a while. I was going to say some of us that are crusty older Christians, but that didn't sound as nice. We've been running this race for a while. For some of us, you know, these things just become, uh, well, it just is what it is. I've heard it so many times, I don't really think about the fact that it didn't, it didn't really have to be the way it is, right? Because a less than perfect entity could have created the universe. All that You've got to think about that a second, don't you? Couldn't, couldn't it? You could have a very, very powerful creator entity and the story could be different. Wouldn't have to be a perfect God in order to have enough power to create everything. But thankfully, it is a perfect God that created everything. You see what I'm saying? So the perfection of God and the perfection of his word, it flows from the fact that he is perfect. We could be dealing with some deity that is not perfectly holy and perfectly loving. That could be the situation we find ourselves in. It's terrifying to think about, because what would that mean? It could mean a lot of things. But praise God through his word, we can see that he's good and powerful from his creation, but from his word we know that he is perfectly, completely, totally holy. Holy and also loving at the same time, which is a very difficult thing for us to reconcile until we take our eyes to the cross and realize that the mercy of God and the justice of God can embrace there and not be in contradiction. Amen. We could be dealing with a deity that is not totally committed to what is best for us. Couldn't we? But through God's perfect word, he has revealed his own perfection to us. This is not something we could have gleaned just from beautiful sunrises, rainbows, and waterfalls. Not to downplay the beauty of creation. Not to downplay what it is declaring about God. I'm not trying to do that. I'm saying it says broad things. We need the word. The the, the world can show us almost what God is, but without the word, we'd never know who he is. And the goal has always been for us to know who he is because he wants us to know him and to love him. Amen. The perfection of God's word means it has the power to restore us. And this is not superficial. It's not just the outside. It's not a skin-deep, temporary change. The word can penetrate all the way to the core of who we are, restoring all that has been broken by sin. And it's the only thing that I know of. The word of God, empowered, and, and, and doing what it does by the power of the Spirit of God is the only thing I know that can run all the way to the core of a man and change things. Jesus is the heart changer. He does it through the power of his word, through the working of his spirit. Amen. It says the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now this idea that the testimony of the Lord is sure, okay, it hinges on belief, and these do kind of build on each other, it hinges on the belief in God's perfection. And it's in one way, it's an application of that idea. Okay. When God speaks about a matter or he makes a promise, you can stand safely upon it. We sang about that this morning. You were prepared for that idea before the Bibles were even opened. That's why it's important to sing songs that are theologically rich, and doctrinally accurate. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> you, you know, I'm okay with this, because uh, I know I'm, I'm, I'm just a wrench in the hand of God. You, you learn as much theology from the songs you sing as you do the sermons I preach. And, and let, let's be honest about this. I, I'm almost talking myself into sitting down. You're... you're, you're <laughs> You're quite a bit more likely to remember the theology you sing than you are the theology I preach. Now hopefully, some shreds of this are, are making it in there and sticking <laughs> by God's grace. Um, uh, but God did all that. That's why he encourages us to sing and to sing together. Our hearts, our minds are being formed in that process. Amen. <clears throat> and so... Knowing we can stand safely upon the testimony of God, it helps us, it helps us to, why is that tied to wisdom? Well, it helps us grow in wisdom because then we don't have to live double-minded about what God has testified is true. Can we be honest about this? There's a lot to work through in this world, in this life. There's a lot of things to consider and try to figure out, all right, what is right about that? Is that, what, what, how should I think about this? And it's, and it's not like, any of us are going to reach this static place in our life where we've considered all things and, we, and we've got it all figured out, right? Are we humble enough to say that? Life changes. We're changing. The people around us are changing. So we're always having to figure out new things. We're having to figure out what is right, where I am, what does it look like, what, the path before me uh, to walk in the wisdom of God. And, and it, it's very helpful when trying to sort all of these things that need to be sorted to be able to look and say, okay, what? What and where does God's word speak to these things? And being able to say, okay, what God says about that, I can quit thinking about that one so hard, <laughs> right? That one's settled. Now I, can, now I can try to deal with the next thing, right? Because when, when you don't have that, when you don't have some kind of authority above and outside yourself, and I would say you'd want one even better than other fallible humans, which could also be a source material where you'd go to try to find a, a strong, firm place to stand, uh, but that that would end up shaking out from under you eventually. So when you, when you find that, it helps you from ending up in that place. James says, the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways and should expect to receive nothing from the Lord, right? The, the, way, I, the way I often think about that, and there's lots of ways this applies, but back in school, we would, uh, gym class, they'd have us run the gym back and forth, right? Like there's two lines on the basketball court. We called them run rats. I don't know, every gym teacher, I guess, had different names for it. So uh, suicides, well, yeah, that's not a great word for it. But anyways, um, yeah, every gym teacher had their own little thing. So it's, being double-minded is a lot like that, right? You're out there, and, and of course, they're just trying to give you exercise. But if we're talking about you're out there running, you touch that line, then you run back and you touch that line, then you run back and you touch that line. Man, by the end of that thing, you do about 10 of those, you're exhausted, you are worn out, and you've gone nowhere. And that's what being double-minded is like. But being able to trust in the testimony of the Lord around whatever it is he saw fit to speak to keeps us out of that very exhausting, very discouraging paradigm. Amen. Next it says, the precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. And these two, they dovetail together and they invite us to consider a couple applications. You kind of noticed here, I'm sure that there's, there's a, a distinct kind of poetic structure to what we're reading. There's, you know, he talks about a, a noun, the testimony of the Lord, right? And then it, it gives us a verb about that. Uh, what it does, there's an application, okay? Um, and, and it keeps, keeps that pattern. So knowing what God says is right is actually right, right? That brings joy to the heart. What that helps us with is to not be left in the agonizing perplexity of perpetual subjectivity. And I realized it was kind of a wordy sentence. Let me break what I, down what I mean. And it seems to be an ever-increasing, this idea is ever-increasing in its ability to deceive. But this continual, continually seeing things as subjective, like, this idea that there, is, there are no constants, right? It's, it's that uh, basically as I, as I move through the world, I'm, I'm able to determine or maybe a group of people I've decided to align with, we're able to determine what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is not, or if there is truth. That's a very exhausting place to live. That's a very shaky place to live. And so when we know If God says something that's right, if I can settle that in my heart and in my mind, if God says it's right, then I'm freed from the scrambling of of that kind of subjective existence. Because you don't get, you're never going to get any of the rest that the Bible talks about is found in the Lord. If you're constantly having to, you're changing what's right or what's true, or if I believe that it's true, or is there truth, and, and it's this constant moving target, Man, that's that's kind of a scurry. That's rough. It's, It's not what we were made for. I think it's interesting in Philippians 4, Paul writes, rejoice. I say it again, rejoice. And then what? Be anxious for nothing. Rejoice. Be anxious for nothing. And I think oftentimes we may not immediately implicate anxiety as a thief of joy thinking about what steals joy. I don't know that we would automatically go to anxiety as as the primary thief or a primary thief, but if we really think about it, it, it's not hard to understand how that works, okay? The, The false idea that freedom and joy comes from determining what is right ourselves, it has robbed joy from many hearts. Can we be honest about what an incredible weight it is to try to determine what is right from our limited vantage point. That's like asking a toddler to carry a piano, man. That's not going to work. That's an incredible if weight. If you take a clear-eyed look at who we really are, what we are, what our vantage point is as mere humans, and then you try to saddle us with the responsibility of determining what is real, what is false, what is right, what is wrong. Are we going to try to carry that? That's going to crush you. If it is not our perfect God, from his high position of eternal wisdom, that's drawing out lines for us that are straight, then we will be forever haggard trying to follow the scribbles that humanity makes. God has drawn straight lines. Walk in the way of the Lord. Does that ring a bell? All over the place, all through the Psalms. I mean, look anywhere, right? Walk in the way of the Lord. The Lord draws straight lines for us to follow. If if you're going to ignore that, you're going to decide that's that's not what I want to do. I'm going to go with what I can come up with or what we as mere humans from our low vantage point, non-eternal, subject to change, fickle if we're honest, aren't we? Then you're going to find yourself trying to follow the, the random scribbles of what would maybe look like a child or even a madman you're going to end up haggard at the end of that. You're going to end up tired. And again, not making much progress. You know, those, somebody just scribbles on a paper, man, you're trying to follow that. It's, it's, it's not just that I'm getting ran around. It's that, man, I'm going, to be looping, I'm going to be looping back around like, ooh, I've seen this before, back in the same spot where I was. Double-minded. The psalmist here gives another analogy that illustrates the point. It says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And so he gives us this other illustration. The perfect purity of God's commands are like light in a very dark place. And for us to try to pridefully determine what is right ourselves, or to rely on other fallen humans to guide us, that's like fumbling in a dark cave walking in circles and tripping and falling and having this ever-growing, dreadful sense that there really is no way out. But imagine you fumble around like that for some time, tripping and falling and, and dread growing, but then a light appears to guide you from that slow and sure death that the darkness offered and out into life and freedom. What do you do in that situation? You fumble around, you're all bruised up, you're tired, close to giving up. This light appears and begins to show you the way out. You just, you're going to sit there and fold your arms and say, no, I'm good. I'm going to keep doing this my way. I sure hope not. I'm, <laughs> I, for one, am going to be greatly rejoicing at the light. And that's what the psalmist said. Boy, my dim eyes can see something now. I've got a direction to head. Somebody smarter than me, with more authority than me, greater wisdom than me, and an eternal perspective, a guy that can see the whole map, when all I can see is the next bend ahead of me, if that is willing to guide me, is willing to show me, is willing to draw straight paths from my feet. Thank you, Lord. And he's patient and long-suffering in all the times that I do sit there with my hands folded like a fool. Man, this God is so patient, so kind, so long-suffering. He'll pause and wait for you to come to your senses sometimes. Am I the only one the Lord's ever had to do that for? Or is there a couple other people who can give me a little witness up in here? Amen. <laughs> Most of you don't even need to look at a calendar to remember the last time that happened. You've been awake five hours, right? Today, amen. God help us. Now, this one's a little tough, okay? Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean. I told you, like each, each of these kind of pearls on a string here, it's all different, poetic examples, ways to to kind of conceptualize the role of the Word of God and and what it is that we're dealing with here in the Scriptures. And here it's called the fear of the Lord. You've probably never thought of the Word of God in this way maybe, but it seems like a strange way to talk about it. But we can get some help from Proverbs just next door uh, to make sense of it. Proverbs 9 Verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Interesting that the writer of the proverb there connects the fear of the Lord and the beginning of wisdom, and then that it's about knowledge of the Holy One. That's what leads to understanding. And is that not the very point we're seeing laid out in this psalm? That there is a, we can come up with a general idea about what God is many good attributes about him from his creation, but without his word, without this precious gift of self-revelation to us as an act of love, we, we would not know the Holy One. We wouldn't know what we know. We wouldn't have nearly as much to be grateful for. We wouldn't have nearly as much to feel safe and secure in as we do because we've had revealed to us his perfection, his incredible commitment to our good. Remember again, try to use your imagination. I know it's hard. Us crusty Christians, let's be honest. We've heard that God is perfect and he's holy and he's good. All these years, so often, it's hard to stop and even think, what if he wasn't? What if he wasn't? But he is. It's a way to conjure in us again some of what this psalm is encouraging us towards, an incredible gratitude for who God is and that he saw fit to reveal these things to us. Thank you, Jesus. This fear of the Lord, in a broad sense, you'll hear this term throughout the scriptures, it's not a terror because we are scared that God is going to harm us. The fear of the Holy One, it's a reverence and it's a deep respect, it's an acknowledgement of his holiness. If you've not thought much about the word holy, what it means, if you've not contemplated and meditated upon that in the context of, of the fact that, that is a, you know, there's angels circling the throne for eternity that have one job, to cry holy. Okay, that's big. Let me think about that a minute. I would encourage you to do it. You got some extra noodle time this week? Just sit and think. What does it mean that God is holy? What is holiness? Because to really consider that, to really understand what that means, it leads you to this proper reverential respect that is the fear of the Lord. It's a right thing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing for us. So it it leads us to this reverence, this deep respect for his holiness. And yet, according to John one twelve, for those who have received Christ by faith, God has given them the power to be his children. To move towards the searing light of his holiness and rejoice in it instead of shrinking back from it. And so all, and again, would we know any of that without his word? What if we were able to even come up with the idea on our own that this God is so powerful, he must must be unapproachable. We would never have the good news about the approachability of this incredibly holy God because of what he's done for us through Christ. We we wouldn't know we can come to him the way a child can come to a parent who loves them. That he is this holy, he's this mighty, And yet we have an open invitation to his presence. Adorned, of course, in robes of righteousness that we had to be given as a gift. You can never come in whatever tattered rags we thought were going to be presentable before a king of this might, of this holiness, wouldn't dare approach him saying, look, I, I think I've earned the right to stand here before you, ooh, ooh, Right? Like the hyenas in Lion King. Sends a shudder up the spine. That two weeks in a row I've referenced Lion King? That's weird. I haven't seen that in a long time. Maybe it's time to watch it. Must be a bunch of good sermon stuff in there. Only through the word of God can we possibly arrive at this understanding of God. So holy that he dwells in unapproachable light and yet so loving he's made a way for us. Not only to approach that light, but to bask in it for all eternity. You realize details of of what eternity will be like are scant scripturally. What do I mean by that? The Bible tells us less about what eternity is going to be like than most of us would like. We would like more details. One thing it has told us, and there there is no need for a giant burning ball of gas that we call a star to create light. You know why? Because the very light of God... Is going to illuminate all things. And you, dear friend, if your faith is in Christ and you are a son or daughter of God, you will spend all of eternity basking in that light, the radiant light of the glory of God. If that, buddy, if that doesn't, if that doesn't cause something to tingle, a fingertip, a toe, something, you, you haven't thought enough about it yet. Keep thinking about it. Ask God to make that real to you. Talking about the holiness of God. Next it says, the judgments of the Lord are true. This is the back half of verse nine. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Now it's interesting, isn't it? All the rest of these had a, a verb at the end, right? Like the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, okay? So there's, there's a noun, a precept of the Lord. It's right, it's got an adjective, and then there's a verb at the end. These all had built into these declarations of God's word and the purpose of it and what it is and it's goodness. We, 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 the applications built in by the psalmist for all of these. And there's this poetic pattern you can flow through and, and see happening, but then it seems to abruptly stop. Right? The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. It doesn't give us an application right away. Okay. The pattern's not actually broken. Uh, It's just delayed, okay? It's delayed as the psalmist invites us to ponder the great value and the incredible sweetness of God's word. It could be that perhaps there's a recognition that this one may be hard for us to wrap our minds around. So there's a pause here to encourage us to think about the preciousness and the sweetness of God's word as we as we think about the fact that the judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether, that's, that's not easy for everyone to, to accept, right? If you're, if you're new to the Scriptures or newer to the Scriptures and you actually read them, there are some things contained within the Scriptures that are hard to understand. There's some things the Lord does. There's some things the Lord sanctions that are hard to understand. Judgments that He makes that to look at it at face value and to to separate it from the entire narrative that is meant to be understood and connected together. If you do that with it, you could come up with a a different picture of who God is or how trustworthy his word is. Okay? But what we have, the, the benefit that we have that King David did not have is the fullness of the whole counsel of God. We stand in a point in the historical timeline where we can look back and we can see the fullest, clearest expression of who God is and how he operates. You know what that is? It's Jesus. That's what the Bible says plainly. And so we can look at the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the way Jesus dealt with the sinner, the way Jesus, who's Deegis? I don't know. The way (laughs) that was Jesus and dealt with Sometimes that happens when you start talking fast. We, we can see the way Jesus dealt with religious people that thought they were righteous on their own. We, we get a lot of, we understand a whole lot more about who God is as a result of, of the, the, the fullest revelation we got as humans about God's character is in the person and work of Christ. The capstone being that God in the flesh would lay his life down, sacrifice himself so that we could have life. That tells you a lot about God. and it's So it, when you're encountering things in the scriptures, particularly oftentimes in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and there's, you're seeing God deal with this particular time and, and, and a particular people, and there's this goal of from that people raising up a nation for himself, that through that nation can come the Messiah. God's doing a specific thing at a specific time. There's these other people groups and all this stuff going on, and you're reading some of these things and some of the ways uh, that, that things happen and things that even that God commands you're like man boy i don't know what to do with that what you got to do is not just look at that in isolation look at the whole thing and then understand this was this was all had to do with a plan of redemption right the bible tells a story of creation and a fall where we through our sinful rebellion introduce brokenness and death and destruction into the world you know, the, the, rest of the, the rest of the scriptures up until the Gospels is, is showing us how God set up a plan of redemption. The fine point of that being the birth of Christ. We then see the plan of redemption unfold in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And that's up through the book of John. And then Acts through Revelation, uh, we're seeing how do we live in light of the fact that God did everything he said he was going to do. Okay. And then some in Revelation, what, what, what's going to happen next, right? So, amen. Uh, So, the pattern's not really broken, it's delayed. If you come down, so it says, The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. If you skip 10 and go to 11, it says, Moreover, by them your servant is warned. So, there's your verb. Get your noun, the judgments, right? And, And what are the judgments? What's your adjective? You're like, I didn't come here to diagram sentences today, dude. I'm not in school. Okay, I'm doing it. You don't have to do it. Just listen, all right? <laughs> Chill out. Good Lord. Right? The nouns, the judgment of the Lord, what are they? They're righteous altogether. They're true, and they're righteous altogether, all right? So what do they do? What's the application of that? Moreover, by them, your servant is warned. But in the middle here, and that, and that can be tough, that, that's, that's a full frontal assault, on every shred of self-righteousness hiding within our hearts. That the the judgments of the Lord are true. They're righteous altogether. And that by them, I'm warned. Right? That's, That's how I should read this. By them, your servant is warned. The judgments of God are a warning, but the entirety of what he's laid out here, the precepts, right? The law, the testimony, the commandments, the fear, the judgments, all of these together, the word of God, what is it? What does he say? It's, it's more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. And, and this, friends, this presents us with an incredibly helpful question. Is it for you? Is the word of God for you more desirable than gold, even fine gold? Is it sweeter to you than honey from the honeycomb. Don't get distracted if you don't like honey. That's not the point, okay? It's a metaphor. It's an example of something sweet that would be pleasant to eat, okay? Amen. Is the word of God more desirable for you than the finest meal you could possibly imagine? Is it more precious to you than however much wealth you could possibly imagine holding? That's really what he's saying here. All the wealth, all the fine things, all the comforts? Is the word of God to you more precious? Do you see it as more valuable than those things? Now, only you and the Lord really know the answer to that. And I'd say most of us, if we're honest, the best answer we could come up with, the, 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 the most hopeful answer we have is that, yes, sometimes that's true and I want it to be more true. That's probably the best we're gonna get to. This should keep us in a posture of understanding my affections My attention is constantly being pulled to other things. There's a constant war for my heart and for my mind, not wanting for me to really be able to say (laughs) that this word of God is more desirable than than anything else you could offer me, really, if you want to just kind of bottom line it. Is that true for us? Do we see it as that precious? Has it become a common thing to us? How does that idea dictate what time is spent during the week in the word? How much does our ideas around that, how we really truly feel about it, if we're honest, dictate the prioritization of gathering with God's people to hear the word of God preached? It's right here. What do you want me to do? I got to hit you with it. And one other thing to consider, I think is important, particularly on the side of that, that is us throughout the week engaging with God's word, having a legit hunger and desire for it. First of all, if that's not where you're at, you may either have never, you, this may be the first time you've ever even heard that that could happen. If that's you, I'm telling you right now, this, this is what the Bible describes as right in terms of how we should relate to it. We should have, we should see it as Precious. We should desire it above all things. We should have a hunger and a thirst for it. So if you don't, great news. The Bible doesn't say, okay, if you don't, God's gonna strike you down with lightning like Zeus from Olympus. That's not the way God works. What it does is it invites us to come before him humbly and ask for the help of his spirit to change our hearts and minds so that it is to us more precious than much gold. That it is sweeter to us than the drippings of the honeycomb, right? Right? And one thing about honey, and you'll see this warning throughout the scriptures, it doesn't. Uh, there, there's warnings about finding uh, a honeycomb and just you know two fists in it and rah rah rah, shoving it in your mouth as fast as you can. And, uh, and and the warning that I'm trying to give you is is not that you you can overconsume the word necessarily. That's not my point. But I think sometimes when people are um, when they're, they're presented with this idea that they they should they should have a, a a legit Spirit-driven, Holy Spirit-driven desire for the Word of God. And then, and then they'll, they'll move towards obedience in that, and they'll want to start reading the Word. A lot of times, I don't know why we're like this, but people will just start like, I'm going to read a book of the Bible every day, right? Or I'm going to, I'm going to read the whole thing in a week. And look, man, if you want to do that, that's fine. But as a long-term plan, if I could just encourage you in this, I think taking, taking smaller intentional sections and then really meditating on it for long periods of time is, is really the best way to digest the incredible depth and beauty and preciousness of the word of God. Okay. And, and, and maybe it's both. Maybe you want to crush 18 chapters a day. Amen. Do that. Don't, don't let me get in your way. But at some point in there, take a minute to really think about three verses of those 18 chapters. Meditate upon it. Chew it long, right? Um, the, the word is, is, it's so deep. It's It's so rich. It's not something you're just, you know, gonna shove down like you're in a hot dog eating contest and get get the nutrition out of it that it's meant to give you, okay? Amen. And so verse 11 is is the verb, that your servant is warned. And in keeping all of these things, the judgments, the precepts, the commands, the testimony of the Lord, right? There is great reward. It's also another great question for us. Do I believe that? Do I believe there's great reward? Greater reward than what I could conjure up for myself, doing my own thing. Or joining another small group of rebels and doing their thing with them, <laughs> right? Can look, look all different ways. But So now, now we see yet another pivot of, so as, as the psalmist is contemplating all of this incredibly deep truth about what the word of God is and what it's like to engage the word of God, we, we see this, what, what almost should be a, 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 very, a very standard place to land once you think of these things and engage with these things, okay? What does it say? So your servant is warned and keeping them there is a great reward. So David's talking about looking into the mirror of the word, which is another way that the Bible is described, that it, it acts as a mirror to us. It shows us who we actually are and then it also shows us who it is we should seek to be, Right? The Bible's saying that we're being conformed into the image of Christ. So do I match up to that image? No, but thankfully he's patient and we're working on it. <laughs> Amen. But what we see here is that we're invited in this poem to ponder all the wonder and glory of God, the wonder and glory of his word. And then we're also led to acknowledge what should be a consistent outcome when we do, when we really think about the goodness, perfection, and holiness of God, when we think about the goodness, perfection, and holiness of his word, there's this consistent outcome that should happen. We see these in verses 12 and 13. Who can discern his errors, acquit me of hidden faults? When we set our eyes upon the perfection and the holiness of God, and we really take that in, in an honest way, it should always lead us to the realization that I am not that. I am not perfect and I am not holy like he is. And we see that happen right here. Who can discern his errors? To stand in a place and truly grapple with what the Bible presents of God's holiness and his perfection, it should, it should lead us to, to even understand, I, 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 I'm not even sure totally all that's wrong with me. I just know I'm not that. I may, I may know some of the stuff that, that means I'm not matching <laughs> his holiness and perfection, but there's, there's this incredibly, I mean, you can treat it as a downer or you can be encouraged by this truth. Friends, right now, if you were aware you, you're, you know, hopefully you're all aware of some place that you're not perfect and holy like God. Hopefully you can, you can come up with something, right? If not, then that's maybe something that you should spend some time in prayer and thinking about. But here's, here's something that will, it's, it's a mind blowing idea. If everything we were aware of right now, all of our imperfections right now, if, if, if God just kind of, you know, magic wanted that and just fixed it all, boom, we're going to, we're going to do hyper sanctification. Everything you know about is fixed don't you know there's more, <laughs> right? Because if everything that was broken about you right now is fixed, do you think if all that was fixed, now you're holy and perfect like he is? Are you really that foolish? Surely not. And so what does that mean? Well, you, you could just crumble up on a ball and say, I quit. <laughs> like That's very discouraging. You can think about it that way. Or you can decide, first of all, that says a lot about God's patience, kindness and willingness to walk with us. And the other thing it it lets me know is I'm, I'm I'm gonna always be in this place knowing who can discern his errors. Lord, acquit me from my hidden faults. And that's a good prayer to pray. Also keep your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. We had a lot of discussion around this idea through the book of Galatians, but friends, to keep in the forefront of our mind this idea not the hidden sins, not the ones that we're, we're, maybe we don't even know that we're, of, you know, thought, word, and deed that we're committing, but the ones that we do know about, the ones, maybe the pet sins, the ones we've justified our way around, the ones where we're being presumptuous, the ones where maybe we've even gone so far as to calculate God's grace is amazing. He'll cover me. Uy, no. Keep me from presumptuous sins keep your servant from presumptuous sins and let them not rule over me. We need to understand that when we, when we go from a sin being hidden to we're aware of it to then, um, well, I, I don't really want to deal with that yet. And then, well, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's not as bad as I think it is. And when we, we find some way to justify it or shade the truth or whatever. And then it, what, what happens is those things then become besetting sins. They become habits. And then we can end up, what does he say? Let them not rule over me. Make no mistake, dear dear friend, whoever you are today, wherever you fit into the paradigm of this discussion, whether you are a believer, you're somebody who has come to the place of acknowledging your imperfection and your need for a savior, whether you belong to Jesus or you don't, you have a ruler. Understand this. You, and it it might be you, and that's maybe the most terrifying of all. (laughs) because you were made to have a ruler wiser than you, who sits on a plane of existence above yours, whose thoughts are higher and better. And so you have a ruler and sin can absolutely become slavery. It can become a taskmaster and not a good one. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of a great transgression. You see, he's... He's not declaring here how he's gonna do this all through self-discipline and will. Who's he calling out to for help? Calling out to the Lord, understanding the picture of his perfection and holiness, the picture of the perfection and holiness found in his word. Seeing that "Ah, I'm not gonna be the one to solve this problem. Lord, you keep keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. Lord, I need you to acquit me of hidden faults. Already, already and, and remember, man, this is David. He had the Torah and a couple sprinkling of maybe other, what we would call Old Testament books, yet we, also, we already see this appeal to grace. <laughs> Lord, I know I've got sins that I don't even know about. Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to need mercy. What else do I do about that? Right? Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight. This, sh- this psalm has um, shaped my prayers, and, and it's, particularly, it's particularly shaped the way I approach the Lord's table, which we'll be doing in just a minute. This, this prayer of David, it's, it's caused me to acknowledge that at any given time, there are sins of thought and word and, and perhaps even deed that I am not aware of. And so oftentimes as I'm approaching the Lord's table, one of my prayers is, Lord, please please forgive me of every sin of thought, word, and deed, both known and unknown. Uh, and I'm not saying you need to take this as a template for the way that you approach the Lord's table. I'm just saying these these principles are true and we got to do something with it. And what are you going to do with it? You're going to have to run to God for mercy because that's about all you can do with it. Now, the presumptuous sins, the ones that you know about, the ones that you're making choices to do and all of that, there can be some application of self-control and, and you and the Lord working together to put those things to death. But man, this just puts into very clear view how desperately we are dependent upon God's grace. And so every time we approach God's word, every time we consider the holiness and the power and the goodness of God's word as we've done through this psalm, first of all, it should lead us to a place of humility. It should lead us to a place of humble acknowledgement that we need God's help. And that's what we see in the verses we just read. And when we are brought to a place of humility where we understand that we are not holy and we are not perfect and that we cannot match up, we cannot do it on our own, it should always bring us to the same place, but also the same person. He ends the psalm with, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David wouldn't have known that as he wrote these words, they were prophetic. He understood that God was a rock and that God was a redeemer to a degree. He knew something of his need for grace and mercy from God, but he didn't have the full picture. King David didn't, of how God was going to accomplish redemption and how he's going to offer grace and mercy to his people. David couldn't have known in the time he wrote this that Jesus would come along a lot later and he would teach and he would say, this is in Matthew, those who obey these words of mine are like those who build their house upon the rock because the winds come and the storms come and that house will stand. But the man who does not, the man who hears these words of mine and ignores them is like a man who builds his house on sand the same storm comes and that sand washes out from under the house and tragic, great is the fall. And it's a tragedy. And that's what happens, friends. Every single time we try to build a life on anything other than Christ himself and the word of God, something is going to come. I don't care how pretty that structure is. I don't care how good it looks from the outside. It's not gonna make it. Because storms are coming in all various forms. So, what does that lead us to? It leads us to the same place it led David to. We just get a fuller picture of what God being our rock and our Redeemer really looks like. Because Christ came and showed us just how incredibly stable the words of God actually are, just how incredibly trustworthy the promises of God actually are. Because up until Jesus came, there was all this, all this talk of a Messiah. There was all this talk of someone coming that was going to do what? Redeem the people of God, right? And, and David in faith was, was looking forward to that, and so was Abraham, and so was Noah, and all the rest, and Moses. So what the Bible tells us, they were looking forward. They, they, they didn't know the details, but they, in faith, they knew God's, We need saved, and God's going to do it somehow. Friends, we have the great, great, great privilege of being able to look back and see the fullness of God's promises fulfilled, which is yet just another way that we can take everything we read about the word of God today at face value. The words of God are true. You can trust them. It's a solid place to stand. I praise God for his gospel and the hope that only Christ provides. I hope today you will too. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. God, right now, I just want to stand as a representation of this church family to you. And I want to say that we repent for every time we've treated your word as a common thing. When we've been lulled into a sense of complacency about how precious and valuable and powerful your word really is. It's the greatest gift we've been given. Without your word, we wouldn't know who you are. We wouldn't know who we are. We wouldn't know why we're here. We wouldn't know where we're going. We would be feckless and hopeless. We would be wandering in the dark. But Lord, you have given us your word as a light, pointing us to the great light, which is you. That's your word. Your word is bringing us to you. And that's always what you've been about. You've been about us and you forever. That's always been the goal. And you have the power to get it done. Even though... We have an incredible knack for messing that up. You've done all that is necessary to fix everything we've broken with our rebellion. We thank you for these truths. Our hope is in you alone. Thank you for your word. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies